Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Um, is this is this good? Is this working? Yes. Yes, it is working. Yes. Okay. So we're going to do the show. Hello. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here today with Daryl Lynn and Jane Coaston. And we are excited. This has been an exciting week in... Um, policy proposals for the 2020 campaign. Uh, so we want to talk about those proposals because we love policy, right? We do. Yeah, I, I gather that there were uh, some that there was a, something of a meta discussion last week about po- the role of policy in the 2020 campaign. And it seems that uh, a lot of Democratic campaign staffers must listen to the the weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network and uh, decided they to heard step it. up their game. Yes. They obviously disagreed with me, agreed with Sarah, came out with more white papers. I think the the most recent one, but in some ways the least sort of meaty of them, was uh, Amy Klobuchar yesterday uh, released for her first, like, campaign policy proposal. It was on infrastructure. Um, her idea was that we should do a trillion-dollar infrastructure plan, um, sort of along the lines of what Donald Trump said he was going to do. Uh, people who who remember the endless Infrastructure Week jokes uh, may recall that this never really happened. Trump wound up coming up with a proposal that was actually really mostly to, to cut infrastructure. So Klobuchar's plan was basically to say, We should do it. The federal government should spend a lot of money on infrastructure. And then she named a whole bunch of different categories of infrastructure, uh, airports, waterways, um, rural broadband, school repair, uh, highways, mass transit. And she said, like, we should spend a lot of money on all this stuff. Right. So it's both kind of the the fact that she's coming out with the infrastructure plan first, the like, let's make what what if infrastructure weak but real is Mm -hmm. interesting. But I do kind of want to. The whole categories of infrastructure thing, Matt, I I only know this because I read your article about it, which we will put in show notes. But like it seems that there is more of a need with regards to some categories of infrastructure than others. Like anecdotally, I feel like I've heard a bunch in the past decade about how horrendous the shape of America's bridges are. And there's a big difference between like putting things toward, you know, literally crumbling bridges, some of which I seem to recall are in Minnesota and just kind of spending money for the sake of spending money in like stimulus kind of sense, right? Yeah. And and she calls that out. It was a, a I-35 bridge collapse in Minnesota was sort of the highest profile. Like that's like the poster child for our bridges are not in a state of good repair. So she calls that out in the document. I mean, the thing is, is that 
In terms of like, why do we want candidates to release policy proposals? She doesn't delve into any of these sort of difficult questions, right? Like, so we're going to spend some money on transit and some on highways. We're going to spend some money on repairs and some money on new stuff. But she doesn't give any indication of like how she would make those kinds of trade-offs. So it's difficult to assess, right? I mean, she's saying, I mean, I guess her commitment to you as an American is that Democrats, if they take power, will spend more money on infrastructure, uh, which I think is true, right? But if you're like a nerd and you're interested in the question of are we doing too much of this or too little of that or grant formulas bad, she's just not like getting into any of that stuff. There's not a lot of weeds to it. Yeah, and I think that the piece that we had on it really kind of goes into that. But I feel as if it's, it's interesting. I know this is perhaps a meta take, but it's interesting to be you know, really trying to make a point of building the like kind of putting legs on the table that is infrastructure reform when the opposing candidate Donald Trump never did so and just talked about it and never put anything really into it. And so it's interesting to see kind of like, oh, there's not really that much weeds here. And when Trump is notably weeds free, he has been weeded. Yeah, I mean, You wouldn't exactly say this is less detailed than a Trump proposal. I mean, I always sort of try to think about these things in terms of uh, Mark Mark Schmidt had an old line that line that it's it's like not just what you say about the issues. It's it's what the issues say about you. And I think that this is very much in keeping with the sort of Klobuchar electability pitch. She is saying that, you know, it makes sense that a lot of voters liked it when Donald Trump talked about doing this. And so she is also going to talk about this thing that critical swing voters liked and cared about, but that the difference is she's going to point out that Trump did not do the thing he said he was going to do, and she is going to do it, right? And while she is not incredibly specific about what that means, she is more specific than Trump was, and people obviously liked Trump at his level of vagueness. So this is like, well, what if it was similarly vague, a little more precise, but also not a huge lie? At the same time, though, in general, you know, and we discussed this a little bit, I think, two weeks ago, like one of the biggest reasons that candidates at this point might be averse to putting meat on the bones of their policy proposals is that when you get into specifics, you have things that people can pick apart. Like very few people are going to oppose the idea of spending money on infrastructure. It's not a, you know, or like the, you know, in a more contentious example, I guess, like in the Democratic primary, it doesn't appear that anyone is going to attack the idea of Medicare for all. It's when people start actually saying what Medicare for all means to them that there start being actual policy differences. Infrastructure doesn't actually seem like, I mean, only the Matt Iglesias of the world would look at a more detailed Amy Klobuchar infrastructure proposal and go, gee, this really doesn't seem like the wisest thing to put out as a priority for a president. This isn't really how this should be done. There should be other priorities here. Like, it's such an anodyne issue that I'm not really sure what the upside of putting things out at this kind of like mid-level of specifics is other than to stake out the issue. And it, I mean, it, it almost seems like a bit of a, a bait and switch where on the one hand, she's trying to stake out, oh, OK, I have ownership of this issue. You know, I was involved in the 2017 proposal by Senate Democrats along these lines. You know, I have credibility. I understand the real problems that America is facing. But on the other hand, the kind of theory of the case that is being put out is the reason that this will happen isn't necessarily because I know exactly how it should happen, but because 
we have the we would have the political will to actually get it done. Right. It's kind of a, a combination of the, you know, gauzy, transcendent, Obama-esque, what we need is just a leader who knows, who understands how to get things done. And the, I, a member of the United States Senate, understand how legislation works. To, to me, though, the anodyneness of the proposal is actually part of the message, right? That I think the picture you get from Amy Klobuchar, from her campaign, from her pitch is that, look, like, if you think that what the Democratic Party needs is to defeat Donald Trump, Amy Klobuchar is the woman for you, right? That she has done well electorally, specifically with white working class Midwestern constituencies. She is running on like popular, unobjectionable stuff that is like total no brainer. We'll poll at 80-20. She is not getting into either incredibly contentious details or very controversial blue sky policy revolutions. And it doesn't seem, I think, that exciting to people who are like at engagement level 12 with politics all the time. <laughs> and, you know, obviously, like she, she's not doing that well in the polls on the basis of this. She doesn't have a ton of buzz. But if you step back in like a quiet time and you're like, OK, look, if I am in the hashtag resistance and I think that Donald Trump is like an unspeakable monster who threatens American institutions and it's urgently required to remove him from power and restore the basic norms and decency uh, to the country, there's something to be said for, well, maybe the centerpiece of our agenda should be roll back this unpopular tax bill, spend the money on infrastructure like he said he was, instead of like, let's go pick some huge fight at a left field about healthcare. Yeah, I, I can understand this. It just everything that got released this week seems like less of a proposal for policy elites, like a, the kind of the Medicare for all fight is really to a lar large extent a fight being fought among people who have a very high awareness of policy and is are yes. like kind of staking out the ground that they want Democrats to take. All of these kind of seem like things, proposals that are less to get policy elites on board than to say, here are the priorities for who I'm targeting to be in my corner on this primary, right. here is the vision of, like, who are the forgotten people in America that I'm trying to get people in, like, early primary states right. to endorse. And even and in that sense, I'm just not super sure what, like, is there a particular outcry in, you know, Iowa and New, and New Hampshire for infrastructure? Like, I can understand, in theory, I can build a logical case that that would be true. Right. I just don't actually know if it is. And so I don't know if this is a particularly strong way for Amy Klobuchar to do the norm core politics thing. But I do think, as you point out, I do think it is reflective of infrastructure is an extraordinarily norm core political concept. Oh my gosh, it's the most, it, yeah. it, it, I mean, it is. It, it is, is the target genes of political concepts. It is. And it's it's centrist, it's forward thinking, but not excessive, excessively so. And it has to do, you know, I, I've talked to, when I talk to conservatives about uh, 2018, I talk a lot about how the a lot of Democrats who won really localized issues. You know, there weren't a lot of Democrats running for the House who were just going on long tangents about Robert Mueller's investigation into the 2016 Trump campaign. But there were a lot of Democrats saying things like, we're going to fix the damn roads. You know, that was kind of what worked for Democrats in Michigan, for example. So it actually is, you know, there, there is something to be said, one, for the value of norm core politics, but also for the idea that this presents a national take at a very local issue. You know, the idea of like, 
their roads are too damn bad in a lot of states and cities and towns that I'm sure, you know, everyone listening can think of primary examples. I know I can't even here in D.C. And I think that that there is something to be said for that, that this isn't reparations. This isn't attempting to, like, take another bite at the healthcare apple. This isn't comprehensive immigration reform, but it is something that everyone can, you know, that many Americans can say, it's like, okay, that is perhaps something one, the federal government should do. And two, the, that the federal government can do. All right, let's, let's take a break. And then let's talk about something uh, a lot more controversial. Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow dot com slash weeds. Okay, so to me, I think one of the, the key things about infrastructure is that that is a policy area in which you're proposing to help people, but there's sort of no bad guys, right? It's just like, we're going to spend some more money. We're going to do some more stuff. Uh, Elizabeth Warren came out also this week with a pitch to rural America that is centered on farm economics that is like 180 degrees from that, right? I mean, she, of course, like she pays homage to uh, rural broadband and other stuff like that. But she says that there's this big problem of of overweening agribusiness monopolies and that she wants to unwind some recent mergers. She wants to basically change the antitrust doctrine and say that we are going to consider the impact on prices that farmers earn when we are assessing these mergers rather than just prices that consumers pay. And uh, we're going to prevent farm equipment vendors from sort of locking people into their mechanics 
She really wants to say to the American farmer, basically, that, like, you are being exploited by large farm industry players, and you should turn to me, Elizabeth Warren, to liberate you from this. She sort of explicitly references some William Jennings Bryan speeches. I mean, it's a very back-to-the-future style of Democratic Party politics. It, it directly ties into, like, 1890s controversies about railroad regulation, um, and it would be, you know, I mean, I think the typical American probably doesn't think that much about, you know, consolidation of meatpacking plants. This is clearly going for the Jane Coaston vote. I'm <laughs> so excited. I You're all believe, about it. Yes, yes. And let's do it. You know, I've been saying for years that it's time to talk about railroad consolidation. <laughs> Your favorite. I'm um, but I mean, thrilled. We're just going to re- we're going to redo the election of 1896. And I'm I am here for it. Yes, the cross, the cross of uh, gold. cross of gold. Yes, or mergers in this case. Exactly. Um, it's interesting to me. I mean, it's very Elizabeth Warren, right? I mean, this is an ambitious policy. It's also like a conceptually ambitious idea, I think, which is that instead of Democrats sort of going for some low hanging fruit to offer rural voters, you should make like a really big pitch. Like you should pick a big fight with agribusiness companies that you otherwise wouldn't even hear about in politics. I would love to have you explain more to us about like what is actually being proposed here and what is a good idea, whether it is a good idea, because I admit I know nothing about foreign policy. Um, I do also want to note, though, that this is like if you calculate the Democratic primary by the amount of time being spent on candidates' proposals on the Vox Media Podcast Network podcast, The Weeds, Elizabeth Warren is winning this going away, right? Like this is, this can, she continues to be just so much more committed than other candidates to early in the campaign cycle putting out detailed policy proposals. And it is interesting as a matter of politics because we haven't necessarily seen that redound to her benefit in polls in particular yet. Like, it's not really clear that this is this is clearly her campaign's theory of the case about how she's going to differentiate herself in the early going. We haven't necessarily seen the political benefits of it yet, but it does seem that they are really committed to this strategy and that they they appear to believe that as long as they put out enough specific proposals that would improve the lives of the people they're ta- talking to, that at some point it's going to click for people. Right. And I, I do think that, you know, I, I I have said this is March many times over the last several weeks. It's sometimes March 2019. It is March 2019. And sometimes I've said this is March because I was referencing the NCAA tournament. But other times I think it's worth noticing that currently the leading Democrat in 2020 polls has not announced for the race yet. That would be Joe Biden. And so I do think that there's a sense that Warren thinks that if she just keeps putting out more kind of policy suggestions, if she keeps talking about policy, you know, she was on uh, Chris Hayes earlier this week talking very specifically about how she wants to take on agribusiness, which is an issue that I think is surprisingly bipartisan, um, which I think a lot of people might be kind of stunned by. But I think that that's something that's been reflective throughout her political career. You know, when she was talking about middle income tax traps in 2003, and when she's talking about farms now, I think that she has a sense that that's something that can, you know, obviously died in the wall. Republicans will not take this on as a suggestion. But I do think that she thinks that there's there's a movable, independent Trump-leaning voter who voted largely on the basis of Trump's kind of alleged bona fides towards, 
either populism or towards the interest of rural voters. And I think she thinks she can perhaps pick off a couple of those voters. Yeah. So, I mean, to talk about this policy, she's got a few things going on. But the biggest and I think by far the most important one is on the antitrust piece. Right. So the way that this goes now is if you have like two food processing middlemen and they say they want to do a merger. Right. And then, you know, the FTC asks them, they're like, hey, what's up with this merger? We're concerned it's going to be anti-competitive. And they say, well, yes, with our new, more consolidated operation, we're going to be able to force farmers to charge us less money. And then we are going to pass along like two cents on the dollar of those savings to consumers. The FTC looks at that and they say, "Okay, farmers are going to lose 98 cents. Consumers are going to gain two cents. That's great. Thumbs up. Right. Like that's how the law works. That's how the process works. And what Warren is essentially proposing is to change that and to say, no, that mergers that will have an adverse impact on the incomes of farm commodity producers, she wants to um, not allow. And that was very much like the capital P populace of a long time ago. That was their thing, was railroad monopolists sort of control the supply lines to the coastal cities, and we need to regulate them in the interests of farmers. And this is the kind of thing that, you know, 10 years ago, I would have said, look, this is a bad idea, right? The conventional antitrust doctrine is correct. Like, we don't need to be structuring regulatory policy as welfare for farmers. The number of people who eat food so far outnumbers the number of people who grow food. It just, it makes no sense to do this. You know, with Trump in the White House, looking at what's happened to American politics since Democrats became congenitally incapable of winning Senate elections in the Great Plains states, looking at what happens when Democrats go from getting 30 percent of the rural vote to 10 percent of the rural vote, it seems to me that, like, you got to do something, right? You, you have to do something to appeal to white rural voters without college degrees who are living in very homogenous communities. And one thing that you can do is try to cater to their racial prejudices and other sort of cultural reactionary instincts, right? That's that's one thing to do is say, look, this wokeness has gone too far. We need to meet people where they are and kind of roll this back. I don't love that idea. Uh, another thing you could say is, look, we need an economic agenda that it's not just like good in the abstract, but that really specifically targets these communities and their enemies. And it says like, nope, we are going to do what Democrats you know, used to do 100 years ago, and we are going to take your side in this conflict with middlemen. And that's essentially Warren's proposal, right? And it's, it's not the policy I would do as a dictator. Um, but as a response to a pragmatic sort of program, food is not a major cost driver for normal Americans. Warren has a lot of good ideas we've talked about here before on housing, healthcare, childcare, the things that are the major cost drivers. And to say, look, like we're going to throw the farmers a bone uh, in terms of how we regulate agribusiness mergers. It's not the worst idea in the world uh, if it can get you some votes. Although, you know, there's a big question, like, can it really get you votes? Right. I do really wonder about this. And I wonder about it in the context of the, you know, the primary calendar, but also the relationship between the primary electorate and the, you know, general election electorate, right? Like, the theory here isn't that no one is anticipating that Iowa swing voters are going to register as Democrats so they can caucus for Elizabeth Warren. Like, it's not the primaries and particularly caucuses are dominated by people who are 
invested in party politics were already you were right. either already active in party politics or who are, you know, taking this opportunity to really invest themselves in the party's future. So like the question that this raises is, is the primary or caucus electorate, are they similar to the people who you would need to win over in the general election? Do they necessarily understand those needs? Like as somebody from, you know, I think all of us, all of us kind of have our go to people that we talk to for like, oh, OK, you're a person in a red state. What are the concerns of red state Americans? And like a lot of those are folk understandings, right? Like my I the people who like my parents, you know, living in Ohio have very strong takes about what is and isn't going to appeal to the you know, swing voters or occasional Democrats that they talk to, they don't necessarily agree with each other. They don't necessarily agree with polling data. Like to a certain extent, you can end up playing a a, a weird shell game where you think that things are going to appeal to other people and they don't. And that's kind of why you have such disparate reactions to say, like Pete Buttigieg saying things like, oh, some people on the coasts don't understand, like, yeah. don't know how anyone could have voted for Trump. And this like meta discourse rather than, you know, rather than generally people saying, OK, what what could we propose to appeal to these people? But it's also not clear that, A, as you said, Matt, that Elizabeth Warren is right on the general election politics. And B, even if she is, it's not clear that Iowa caucus goers would necessarily get that. Right, right. Like my my parents also in Ohio would really love a campaign that was a lot really focused on taking down Monsanto. But that's because my parents are my parents. My parents are not representative of Ohio voters or Midwestern voters in general. And so I think that I appreciate the word campaign for continuing to just really ride the what if we just talked about policy the, the whole time train. But I do I'm I am also curious as to how this actually reflects would this be something, as I said, that could move the needle with voters or is it just not going to do that? Right. I mean, I guess that this is the other kind of theory of the case, right? It's like because Warren has something where other candidates don't, especially once we get into the debate phase of the primary, she can start saying, I have a plan for how you would no longer be at the mercy of big ag. Other candidates don't have that. That's not something they can offer you. So like, you know, hopefully... What what I'd love to see would be and, you know, talk people talking more about like, OK, how do we not only what do we put forward affirmatively with regard to rural America, but also, you know, should we really should we tackle the fact that a lot of Americans, especially kind of environmental activists and health activists, are very skeptical of the of farm subsidies? Like, right. You know, how how do we square and, and, and conservatives also like farm subsidies are a giant. It actually is like there's a bipartisan group of people who hate farm subsidies in general, especially, you know, when we talk about ethanol subsidies as well, which I know for Iowa, that's a that's a whole different kettle of worms. And, and like, you know, there is a good rhetorical point to be made about how much energy should be being spent on talking to people who have been geographically left behind versus acknowledging the fact that a lot of people and specifically a lot of Democratic voters, you know, live in cities, like either moved out of those neighbor the, those areas of America or never were there. Like the extent to which this fits into a model of not just appealing on a state by state basis, but also like what are we saying about who is being, you know, who who is being victimized in America and who is most important to help? Like these are things that actually are going to bring different parts of the Democratic coalition against each other. Right. And you know, I mean I think 
a question about how you think about Warren, right, with just the sheer scope of things she's taking on is, you know, do you think of this as additive or do you think of it as subtractive, right? Like, I am a, a passionate housing policy guy. Uh, Warren has a housing policy proposal that is really good, right? It is much more comprehensive than the rival ones uh, from the couple of other candidates who've addressed it. It's, like, super sophisticated. It touches all the key bases, and I love it. Uh, I look at some of her other stuff. I, I don't really agree with the tech monopolists thing, the pitch she's got there. I have mixed feelings about her agriculture plan, which which I like better than the tech one. And it's so, well, do I look at that and do I say, look, this is someone who has a really good proposal on an issue that is very important to me. So I'm excited. Like all these other candidates are quite vague on on almost everything. Uh, Warren is is the winner. And then you have like a whole big coalition, right, like that, of people who find one thing that she's really clear on, really ambitious on, and they love it, or does it go the opposite way? And everybody looks at this, and, you know, if you have 100 ideas, uh, nobody's going to like all 100 of them, right, which is one reason why politicians traditionally, like, try to steer clear of firm commitments. You just kind of want everybody to like you, and, you know, you you do what Amy Klobuchar did, right? Like, we should spend a bunch of money on infrastructure. Like, that's something a lot of people can agree with. If you try to get more into the details, you're going to end up losing people. And Warren is, she's very into the details. Like, she would be a great podcaster. Um, and I, I wonder about that approach to politics. Um, yeah, I, I do think that. But at the same time, I don't think there are meta themes in the policies she's rolling out, even if she is not always rhetorically making those connections. I think a lot of commentators, including you, Matt, have pointed out that the theme and, you know, that unites this and the tech proposal and her, you know, shareholder proposal and that kind of thing is the fact, the idea that bigness is a threat to the actual humans involved in the American economy and that that is that taking down the you know, the kind of people who have managed to grow fat off ubiquity is going to help, you know, a thousand flowers bloom. It's like it's a better, more human, more accountable capitalism. Like that's driving me personally crazy because it means that Elizabeth Warren, the only candidate who's putting out white papers every gosh darn week, probably isn't going to put out a white paper on immigration anytime soon because it just it's not an obvious fit on that theme. But it does. It's, it is something that says something about what she thinks the problems facing America are and why she would be uniquely qualified to fix them. Like it's similar to Amy Klobuchar and saying, well, the reason that I think infrastructure is, you know, the reason that I'm putting infrastructure forward isn't just because I think it's an important thing, but because if you under, if you think infrastructure is important, you should know that I'm the person to best fix that problem because I know what it takes to get things done in the United States Senate. Like, OK, that's that's a narrative that makes sense. We should probably take a, a break and go to go to the third proposal that got rolled out this week, because that's where I have a few more questions about, like, I'm not really sure how it fits into how the candidate is trying to present themselves and what it says about her as like the, the best person to do that. All right. Let's break it. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. 
The first thing that got rolled out this week was a proposal from Kamala Harris, one of the first big proposals that she's put out. She's been doing a lot of really active early state campaigning, um, but hasn't necessarily been as much at the forefront of the policy primary. Um, But she has rolled out a plan to increase teacher pay substantially over a four-year period. This is what is interesting. There is the Democratic party is in a different place on education than it was a decade ago. And this is very much a proposal that is shaped by the recent teachers' strikes and threatened teachers' strikes in West Virginia and Arizona and Oklahoma. Uh, And the idea that it's not about improving the quality of education per se. Like a decade ago, if you had heard a Democrat talking about increasing teacher pay, you probably would have correctly assumed that they were talking about we need to attract more talented teachers to education so that our kids can, you know, can get a better education. This isn't about that. This is on the theory that teachers are doing extremely important work and they are undercompensated for it and that it is a matter of economic justice to improve their pay. So the actual mechanism here, because, of course, education is largely a state thing, is that the federal government is going to give states money if they agree to sign up for this for one year to raise teachers' salaries a certain amount. And then over the subsequent three years, uh, the federal government will put in $3 for each dollar that states put in uh, with the goal of raising it ultimately to like 10 times the initial government investment. That, of course, does require states to put in some money. And like after that, in theory, states are required, states would be expected to maintain these salary levels on their own dime. Uh, So it does raise a lot of questions about feasibility. But, you know, it's an answer to what does a federal education policy look like that actually puts teachers first rather than thinking about, you know, school level investment or just kind of putting unfunded mandates out there. Right. Well, and what one of the things that's interesting about this, right, is there has been a running knife fight in the Democratic Party about K-12 education for a while now. And it's been basically about you know, uh, efforts by reformers is, I guess, what you call them, that the Obama administration very much embraced to sort of change school management practices, to try to optimize how money is spent. And the interesting thing about Harris's plan is that she successfully threaded the needle and she got, as you would expect, teachers unions are excited about the idea of paying teachers more money. uh, But she also got Arne Duncan and a lot of other reform faction leaders to say, like, yes, I think that this is a good idea. Right. And so that is particularly in the sort of meta level, right? Like this is how Harris kind of bubbled up uh, to the top tier, I think, in the first place, is that she is a candidate who in a traditional presidential politics sense is very much at the center of the Democratic Party. Right. She managed to put forward an education policy proposal that both of the major factions of Democratic Party education thinking uh, believe in. And I think you can ask questions about kicking the tires of the sort of technical aspects of this, as as you were getting into, Dara. Like, like, would this really work? How much uptake would you really get? But on a level of principle— She's managed to portray herself as someone who cares about education, which I think a lot of Democrats do, and cares about in a way that both the reformers and the teachers can feel pretty good about and can be enthusiastic about. And it's a it's a striking context to uh, contrast to Cory Booker, um, who is very much from the reform faction, and also to uh, Warren and Bernie, who have sort of picked the, the anti-reform faction in clear ways. Harris is out there as a candidate who is able to take one of the 
thorniest issues for the Democratic coalition and put together something that everybody can feel good about. And that is, to an extent, what the job of being president is. And and to me, like, that's the the message here. Um, now, if you really want to know, like, is this actually going to induce red states to raise teacher pay? I'm, I'm kind of skeptical that it will. Right. I mean, the fact that she's out here saying, well, they've done these modest teacher pay raises on their own without having the federal incentive. Like, yeah, but it took actual labor strife for them to do that. Right. And I'm not at all sure that you can rely on teachers unions to put enough pressure on red states to do this kind of thing four years running. My question is, as to the points that we were making about um, both Warren's proposal and Klobuchar's proposal, is how much does this move the needle with non-teachers? How much does this move the needle with either primary voters or voters in the general, hypothetically? I think that as a part of a suite of proposals, it makes some sense. But I just don't think, I mean, I think teachers unions, while both being powerful and they're relatively popular within the Democratic base, but outside of that base, not so much. And so I'm curious, like, you know, as kind of the first piece of a suite of proposals that are supposed to explain why Kamala Harris is the best possible option to run against Donald Trump in 2020, I am curious as to why this was the one that was chosen, especially when I don't know how much it moves it moves the needle on non-teachers or people outside that you know, who are not involved in the democratic knife fight over education. Well, but but I disagree, Jane. Like I think teachers are pretty popular. Right, right. Like they're not I think I think that there's a difference here between the institutional democratic fight over the power of teachers unions right. and the talking point like Frankly, I think that raising teachers' pay is more like spending a lot of money on infrastructure than it is on break up big ag in terms of like things that if you just hear that sentence, a lot of people will get on board with. But the reason that it's super interesting to me that she's portraying herself as an education candidate is that this is another aspect in which she's trying to work against her past record, like or aspects of her past record that are problematic to some of the activists who are like taking an outsized role in this primary. Because as just came out this week in a big HuffPost investigation, like a piece about the impacts of the anti-truancy law that had been one of her signature pieces of legislation as a prosecutor in California. And that's the kind of thing that definitely works with a, I really care about education. I care about the children. Building a progressive America requires us to make a big investment in making sure that kids are getting the best education they can. Um, But it also cuts against the anti-punitive criminal justice activist strain in democratic politics right now. And it's been interesting to me that she's tried to lean into her prosecutor rep in you know, her rhetoric, especially because as a senator, she's often been on the other side of those. She's often been kind of decrying punitive policies. Right. But the kind of drum major for justice thing that she's got going on is something that it's just it's it's interesting that instead of it all apologizing for it or saying, you know, different things were needed for different times, she's saying that she uniquely understands the ways in which government needs to fight for people. And she uniquely understands the virtues of getting kids to school by whatever means, you know, like of of school as an important locus so that she's doing she's offering on the policy side the carrots and can't help but call attention to the fact that is that in her, the rest of her career she was going for the sticks. And I think that she's eyeing Joe Biden as 
the rival for establishment Democrat voters, right? And is looking at it and is assessing correctly that nobody is going to do a pairwise comparison between the two of them and decide that she's the candidate who has uh, gone too far in terms of tough on crime stuff in the past, and that she's going to be the candidate who, um, unlike Joe Biden, is not spending half her time apologizing for her record, right? That like Kamala Harris thinks that Kamala Harris was good in her previous offices is a kind of logical, easy to understand campaign pitch. Um, I did a good job as a district attorney. I did a good job as attorney general. I did a good job briefly as a senator. And now I'm going to go be president. And like, here I am. Like, I I huddled. You know, there's been a lot of talk about like different candidates' approaches to the policymaking process. And I think this this education thing, this, this teacher salary thing is Harris showing not like the wonks approach to policy where you like come off with something that's like totally original and like blows people's socks off, but also not the kind of floating above it all thing where you like stand on top of a counter and, you know, talk about your feelings, but the sort of work of a politician, right, who like talks to people and is like, look, I came from this out of a law enforcement background, but I also need to address education policy. What do the stakeholders in education policy want? Ah, Actually, you are both saying that teacher quality and retaining quality teachers is important. So here's an idea that I think will do that and will meet everybody's core needs. And they come back around and they're like, yep, this does meet our core needs, right? And that, in a, you know, Viberian sense, I think is like really like the the essence of, of politics. And I, I kind of like it. Yeah, I think that that's fair. On the other hand, it is interesting to me that Harris is the one major candidate who, at least I'm aware of, who has explicitly said during one of her televised town halls that you only get a certain number of pieces of major legislation. And so, like, I am reviewing literally all of these policies as, okay, are you saying that because you're putting this thing out first that it's going to be one, one of your one or two big bills? Or are you saying that this is just an idea that you have that like might be nice, but you understand that you're not going to get it done in your first term? Or, you know, it's it, it will never not be frustrating to me. And I know that we've talked about this on the podcast before, but like the fact that we ha- don't have any major proposals that aren't legislative in nature continues to be wild. And the longer the primary gets and the more different topics people are putting out legislative proposals on, the wilder it gets. Yes. And again, it is March. Who knows where we're going to get by like May. Yes. Yeah. Who knows? Indeed. Well, (laughs) that's why we will uh, keep doing the episodes, right? Yes, indeed. Indeed. All right. Um, so, you know, OK, thanks to you guys. And thanks, as always, to our sponsors, uh, to our producer, uh, Jeffrey Geld, also to uh, my, my remote hosts here at the uh, Harvard Office of Public Affairs. And the Weeds will return on Tuesday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.